we're going to continue our sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. We're calling it the best sermon ever, one of the most well-known sermons ever preached, if not the most well-known, the first sermon of Jesus recorded for us in the Gospels. And already, you know, we're, we're just in the first chapter of three of, uh, of this sermon. It, it is recorded for us in chapters five, six, and seven of Matthew, but I am already struck with how Jesus' preaching is not vague, and it's not hypothetical, and it's not abstract, uh, it's not disconnected from life, it is candid, and it's earthy, uh, not earthly, as in the New Testament sense of fleshly or sinful, earthy as in it impacts our, our lives here on earth how we live every day. It's highly practical, his preaching in the Sermon on the Mount, as we've seen thus far. And it's easy to see as you listen to Jesus, as you read his words, how living in God's kingdom under his rule, under his reign, which is what Jesus is talking about here, which is what his ministry was all about. The kingdom of God has come. Repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. God is uh, has his rule, his reign has broken in. We want to live under that, according to that. We want him to reign over us, our lives, our hearts. And as we read his sermon, we see how living in God's kingdom impacts every aspect of our existence. Our emotions, as we saw a couple of weeks ago when we talked about anger, the anger that can even lead to the taking of human life. It affects our desires, as we saw last week when we talked about lust, which Jesus labels as adultery, and it also impacts our relationships. And today, in our text, Jesus tackles marriage and divorce. And so that's what we're going to tackle as well in just two verses. Just two verses? But of course, there's a lot to be said. So let's start in verse 31 one of two that was read to us just moments ago. Jesus carries on in his sermon. He says, it was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. What is Jesus referring to here when he says, it was said, and then he obviously quotes from something? Well, as was the case in our, our previous two sections of Scripture, Jesus is referring here to the law of Moses. And in particular, he's referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24, the first four verses, in which, and we won't go back and read these verses, I'm going to attempt to summarize them here, in which God permits, in the old law of Moses, permits a husband to divorce his wife if he finds, and this is the English word in my Bible, indecency in her, some translations say uncleanness. And also, these verses say, if she goes on and remarries and then divorces again, the first husband can't remarry her. That's kind of the gist of these first four uh, verses of Deuteronomy chapter 24, to which Jesus refers in verse 31 of Matthew chapter 5. Now, this term, the Hebrew term, that is translated indecency, uncleanness, it's difficult to know exactly what that is referring to. It's hard to understand the exact meaning of that term. However, uh, it's clear that it's an exceptional thing. 
that God is not saying that you can't just get a divorce for any reason. This, this term, uncleanness, indecency, whatever it means, it's, it's exceptional. However, by the time Jesus comes along, this is hundreds of years later, there was a widespread belief in easy divorce among the Jews. Just to give you some examples, uh, the Mishnah, which was the first major written collection of Jewish oral traditions, said, and I'm quoting here, the school of Shammai, who was a prominent, uh, influential rabbi, say, a man may not divorce his wife unless he has found unchastity in her. That sounds a whole lot like Deuteronomy chapter 24, the law here that, we're, that uh, Jesus mentions. But listen to this. The school of Hillel, another influential rabbi, say a man may divorce her even if she spoiled a dish for him. So according to this rabbi, to this school of thought, if your wife scorches the pot roast for Sunday dinner, uh, then you have a legitimate reason for divorce. You can put her away for that. And, and here's Rabbi Akiba who says, a man may divorce her even if he found another fairer than she. So according to this teacher of the law, if you find another woman that you think is more attractive, then you can legitimately divorce your wife and pursue her. And so Jesus... In Matthew chapter 5, is preaching to people who were hearing, not just, you know, from people on the street, but from prominent, influential teachers of the law, that you only need a trivial reason to throw your marriage away. You only need a trivial reason. Does that sound familiar? Do we live in a world in which a lot of people believe this. There's a subset of people in our society who believe marriage is disposable. And they may not say that, but that's what they believe. And therefore, if marriage is disposable, then divorce should be easy. We have today, and as we've seen, this was the case in Jesus' day, a culture in which there is a low view of marriage, a low view of marriage. And this low view of marriage, and I've got a slide up here, a low view of marriage has made divorce more acceptable. It was only in 1970 that the first state of 50, the state of California, passed a law bringing in no-fault divorce meaning you could seek a divorce and get a divorce from your spouse without proving that he or she did anything wrong. And that was signed into law by the California governor at that time, who himself was a Hollywood actor before he got into politics and was divorced and remarried. His name was Ronald Reagan. You may remember it. And now, all 50 states uh, have a no-fault divorce law on the books. And some people say that it was in 1970 and leading up to that time, that's when marriage began to be redefined in our country. That's when a lower view of marriage began to take hold 
among our citizens. And truly, if marriage is, as many people say that it is and believe that it is, if it's just a fluid social arrangement nowadays, not just for men and women, but for men and men and women and women, if it's just a fluid social arrangement designed for the convenience and the happiness of the contracting parties, and I'm, I'm quoting here from, from a writer who says this is how a lot of people define marriage today, and I think we would see that to be the case. If it's only that, then, of course, if it's not meeting those goals, if I am not satisfied, if I am not happy, then what is keeping me in that arrangement? And in that relationship, if it's nothing more than just a a social construct designed for my satisfaction, if it's not meeting those goals, if it's not conducive to those ends, then let's end it. If it's nothing more than that, We have a low view of marriage in our culture. And in Jesus' culture, it was the same story. And it was into that culture, this culture that viewed marriage flippantly, that Jesus speaks a piercing word. And this is what he says in verse 32. I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus chimes in. He says, I'm not going to join the debate among the rabbis. I'm going to tell you the will of God. I'm going to tell you God's original plan, which we will soon see in its fullness. But Jesus says here in this voice, excuse me, verse, I do know how to say my R's. In this verse, you can't get a divorce for just any reason. In fact, Jesus says here, plain as day, in black and white ink in my Bible and on the screen, the only reason, the only exception that he gives here to his teaching, stay married, don't get a divorce, the only exception that he gives is infidelity. The Greek word porneia, which refers to engaging in sexual intercourse with someone other than your spouse. If your spouse has been involved in that, then you can divorce and remarry. That is Jesus' exception. It's what Jesus also says in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9. He repeats himself there. He says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, that same word, porneia, which refers to a sexual relationship outside of the marriage, and marries another, commits adultery. Now some people look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, and see an additional exception from Paul, in which he's speaking to marriages between believers and unbelievers, and he tells believing spouses that if their unbelieving spouse leaves, then let them go. But I'm unconvinced that Paul permits, in that case, divorce and remarriage. It's not clear to me that he does from desertion. But if he does, that's limited. It's a a limited context there to marriages between unbelievers and believers. So I do believe that we have 
one exception. The one laid out here in Matthew chapter 5 and also in Matthew chapter 19. But, but, even, Jesus says, even in the case of infidelity, you're not required to divorce. Reconciliation and restoration should always be the first option. Even though it will be immensely difficult to put the pieces of your marriage back together, that should be your goal. Why? Because, let's face it, all of this teaching makes no sense to people who have a low view of marriage. Who believe that marriage is just a social construct, just a temporary relationship between two people, and when that loving feeling is gone, 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 you can end it. It doesn't make sense in that context. Why is Jesus saying all this? Well, it's because in contrast with our culture, God has a high view of marriage, a very high view of marriage. And the people had forgotten. The Jewish people to whom he preached, and we have forgotten. In Matthew chapter 19... And in the parallel account of Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, I'm going to go back, I'm going to reach back before the teaching of the rabbis, the popular teachers of the day. I'm going to reach back even before the giving of the law in the Old Testament through Moses to the people of Israel. I'm going to go all the way back and appeal to the creation account. That's what Jesus does. In Matthew chapter 19, the Pharisees come and they test him and they ask him, hey, Jesus, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? And this is what he says, have you not read? Which would have been offensive to them, by the way, because they were Pharisees. They were Jewish religious leaders and they probably wanted to say, are you kidding? Have we read? Of course we've read. Jesus says, have you not read? That he, God, who created them from the beginning, made them male and female, and said, and Jesus quotes here from Genesis chapter 2, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but they're one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. I say that at almost, uh, at the end of almost every wedding ceremony that I preach. The words of Jesus here. And they said, well, hey, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of, of divorce and send her away? That's from Deuteronomy 24 that we talked about earlier. And Jesus said, and his words are important here, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. God made a concession. But from the beginning, it was not so. From the beginning, that was not God's plan. And that's still God's plan in my day, Jesus says. And it's God's plan in our day as well. It's God's ideal. As we said last week, marriage is more, much more than just a social arrangement designed for convenience and happiness. It's much more than that. It is a sacred covenant relationship between one man and one woman for life. Those of us in Christian marriages need to remember that they involve more than just us. More than just the couple. More than just man and wife. 
In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul says, and this is amazing, and, and he actually says it's a profound mystery, marriage is to be a living picture of the relationship of Christ and the church. That's Ephesians 5, verses 22 through 33. He says, wives are to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. And do you know how much Christ loved the church? Jordan earlier in his Lord's Supper thoughts talked about the love that was demonstrated at the cross of Calvary. How much did Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. Husbands, Paul says in Ephesians 5, do you love your wives like that? Are you willing to lay down your life for your spouse? You are called to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Marriage is to be a portrait of the relationship shared between the Lord and His church. That's what Christian marriage is. Oh, it's so much bigger than just a piece of paper. So much bigger than how the state views marriage. So much bigger than a social construct. It's sacred. It's a covenant made not just between two people, but before God. So marriage is about much more than just us. It's about, listen, it's about demonstrating the love and fidelity of our God. You are faithful to your spouse because you want to portray, you want to show, you want to demonstrate to the world what faithfulness looks like, what devotion looks like, what the love of God for all humanity looks like. There's a high calling on your marriage as a Christian couple. So we bless God. We bless God in our marriages. But let me tell you, our marriages can also richly benefit us. They can richly benefit us. A few years ago, I read uh, about a lady from New York, the Bronx, who was turning 107 years old. Can you imagine? And a local news station came to interview her. And they, of course, asked her, what's the secret to making it to 107? And she said, well, I uh, exercise daily. And she said, I do a little bit of dancing. That helps me out. And she also said she likes to play bingo to have some fun and to keep her mind sharp. But here was her biggest takeaway. I'm quoting her. She says, her name is Louise Senor. She says, I think the secret of 107 is I never got married. I think that's the secret. <laughs> she says, my sister says, I wish I never got married. <laughs> but when the article was written, her sister was 102. So I don't think she's got it quite right. She says, Miss Senor says, staying single helped her live a long life. But it's true that a healthy marriage can bless, can enrich our lives. Now, that is not to say marriage is easy. And some of you know that better than me. You know, I've only been married... How long has it been? 14 years? Yeah, 14 years. That was all part of the plan. That was a joke. I knew all along. 14 years. Some of y'all have been married 20, 30, 
40, 50 years, you know that it's not always a walk in the park. Marriage can be very difficult. Uh, And we should say it's not for the faint of heart. It's for the tough-minded. But let let me share with you this, because I think this is true across the board, a true principle. The road to the best things goes through the hard things in life. This is true. The road to the best things goes through the hard things. So we need to know that if God blesses us with many years with our spouse, if we endure together, if we commit to loving one another and being devoted to one another, then there are probably, on the back end of of the, the troubles and the trials in our marriage, there is probably great blessing to be experienced. And young people, and I used to get on my nerves when preachers would be like, young people, listen up. But I'm saying young people because y'all aren't married yet. So let me tell you, when you go, when you enter into marriage, make sure you are committed to your husband or wife for life. Don't go in with divorce in your vocabulary. Don't enter with an exit strategy in mind. Know from the get-go, you are in this for the long haul. And and I'm speaking to married folks as well. You're in this for the long haul, through the ups and downs, through sickness and in health, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer. That's what you said. That's what many of us said in our vows. Young people, make sure you're marrying for life. Marriage can be... It can be hard, yes, but marriage can be more rewarding than we can imagine. It can be more rewarding than we can imagine. I've got a special couple up here on the screen. And I hope I'm not embarrassing my brother this morning. A couple that we love, that we know here, Jim and Jean Boyd, who in 2016 celebrated their 70th wedding anniversary. And Brother Jim's in the house today, and Sister Gene is no longer with us. This is a marriage that we can look to. We, if you saw this couple together, you knew their love for one another, their devotion to one another. This, of course, was a difficult trial that they faced. But here they are in a hospital room celebrating such a grand milestone in their life, their 70th anniversary. I want to make it to 70 years of marriage. Wouldn't that be grand? if God were to give us enough years to make it to 70 years. And they faced a lot of trials. And they went through a lot of... uh, And I could be speaking of any uh, couple who has been married 50, 60, 70 years in the house this morning. But on the other side of those were great blessings, the companionship that they experienced. And the ease and, and the comfort with which they related to one another. These are the kind of couples we need to hold out as an example for the rest of us. And we're so thankful for those in our number who have been married this long and who set for us a fine example of love and devotion and fidelity. A couple in the house today, you, y'all told me uh, just this last week that your eighth and final grandchild was recently baptized into Christ. And you can enjoy that together. 
having raised your kids up in the Lord, and now they're married and have kids of your own, and your grandchildren have been baptized into Christ. And, and you can experience the joy of that together. You know, marriage can even make heaven sweeter. Years ago, I was on a medical mission trip in Panama, and there was a married couple that was baptized. They'd been married for 42 years. When they came to the new converts class, it was clear how much they were in love. The man talked about how his wife was the most special thing that ever happened to him. But he also said that they had worried about one passing away before the other, and that made them sad. But now that they had been baptized, they said, and they knew that they were saved, they no longer had to worry about one passing away before the other. They no longer had to say goodbye. So marriage. You know, I get a little tired of people talking smack about marriage. I get a little tired of hearing, even among Christians, People making snide remarks and jokes about marriage being a drag. We've got to quit talking like that. If we believe that marriage is the blessing God intended it to be, marriage can be more rewarding than we can imagine. But we also need to realize that divorce is always more destructive than we think. Always more destructive than we think. I had a lady in her 80s tell me, a lady whose husband had an affair and left 50 plus years before. She told me about regular dreams that she has about getting into arguments with her ex-husband. And she said that she had a dream recently where she and her children, when they were younger, they couldn't find him. She said, we were looking for him. You see, adultery... And divorce is so disruptive. It's so destructive that the effects are felt decades after it occurs. Is it any wonder why some manuscripts of Malachi, the last book of our Old Testament, say God hates divorce? Some of you have been through it. You've had family members go through it. You've had friends go through it. And you can attest to how terrible it is. How destructive it is. And it's not a surprise to you that in Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, we're told that God hates it. So Jesus in our text and elsewhere says, don't. Don't do it. It is a serious matter to break a marriage covenant. So don't. And to do so, and to remarry on any other grounds except porneia, infidelity, he says here, is tantamount to adultery. Now there is hope. There's always hope when it comes to our faith. It must be said to the divorced that for the one who was, who was wronged, there can be healing. There can be healing. Maybe your spouse was unfaithful to you. 
and you fought tooth and nail to save your marriage. And you did everything, absolutely everything that you could. You pulled out all the stops. And they were unrepentant. And they went their own way. Painful. But there can be healing for you. There can be healing for you in Christ. There can be healing. There can be full forgiveness even, even for the one, thank you, for the, he's helping me make my point, for the one who wronged their spouse. If there is true repentance and a change of, of heart and a change of ways, there can be full forgiveness. And to the yet to be married, and to the married, listen, in a world, the, the world in which we live, in a world of broken vows and broken homes, there is hope for not just a marriage that survives, but for a marriage that thrives. There is hope for healthy marriages with Jesus. With Jesus as your Lord. With Jesus as your foundation. And as you grow closer to Him, you can grow closer to one another. A few years back, Southern Living Magazine featured, hey, don't judge me for reading Southern Living, by the way, featured several older ladies uh, from the Mississippi Delta who were matriarchs of their families. One of the ladies I have a picture of up here was Velma T. Moore from Grapeland, Mississippi. She was the mother of 15 children. She had over 100 grandchildren, 33 great-grands and 23 great-great-grands. Sort of a big clan. Here's the quote from her that appeared in the magazine. No, indeed. I don't like that. That uh, talk about no divorce. No, if you're going to marry somebody, you're supposed to marry them. You said till death do us part. You hang there. It's going to be dark days, light days, but you're supposed to hang there until death do you part. And I always say, Lord, I want one husband. I want all my children to be by that one man, and God fixed it so, and we got 15 heads. That's the first man I married. Never been married no more and never will. No, I will not. And I got 15 children by that one man and I thank God and I did just like he said, we was not divorced. I'm still Mrs. Moore and I'll be Mrs. Moore until I'm dead and gone. Mrs. Velma T. Moore from Grapeland, Mississippi gets it. She gets it. Do we get it? Would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Father, we love you, and we're in awe of your love for us, and we want to get your word. We want to understand it. Give us the wisdom and the insight that we need to understand how to live according to your will. We're thankful for marriage. Remind us what a great blessing marriage can be. Uh, help those of us who are married, those of us who will get married, Help our marriages to be healthy and strong and successful. Help the husbands and the wives in the crowd today to grow in their love and their devotion and commitment to each other. Thank you for the examples that we have of so many couples here who've stuck it out through some hard times, through some difficult days, who remain devoted to one another. Thank you for that wonderful example. Father, again, thank you for your love. Thank you for your word. 
Help us to continue to study your word so that we can know how to live it out. Thank you for your son. Thank you for his love, for his church. And remind us that in our marriages, we should be showing forth a picture of his relationship to his people. Remind us of the high calling that we have in our marriages. And thank you so much for all the ways you bless us. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen. At this time, we always sing a song. We call it a song of encouragement, a song of invitation. And it's for anyone who may be struggling in any way, spiritually. If you're struggling with doubt, if you're feeling weak, uh, if you're discouraged, then this is a time for you to come and to say, I've been praying, but I need my brothers and sisters. I need my church family praying too. I need to enlist more people as prayer warriors for my life. You can come and we can pray for you. We can pray for you this morning, but we can also commit to praying for you in the week to come. Or if there's anyone here who has not dedicated his or her life to Jesus Christ, we want to implore you, we want to beg you to come and do that. As my brother Evan did this past week, he confessed the name of Christ, turned from his sins, and was baptized so that those could be washed away. Why don't you do the same thing if you haven't? Don't wait a moment longer. Come right now as we stand and sing.